0: both difficult and it would also make tax loss harvesting difficult so here's where you get into this notion of direct indexing direct coming from direct ownership for the client they own stocks it's indexing because it's always tied to an underlying index you're tracking a portion or a part of the market represented by some standard index but the real magic that all of the good providers do is they don't own the entirety of it. We're gonna sample through some methodology, we're gonna sample and own a statistical representation of the market so that we're only holding 200, 300, 350 stocks out of that. So maybe I'm trying to track uh, 3000 name index, but I'm gonna hold 300, but it's statistically gonna look very, very similar to the index in its characteristics. And it's gonna deliver a return stream that basically mimics the index so now i'm directly owning those stocks i can loss harvest because i don't own all of the index as i lost harvest i can buy replacement stocks put them into the client's account maintain my exposure to market so i capture market return and along the way harvest losses <laughs>
1: Welcome to AFO Wealth Management Forward, a podcast about finance, accounting, technology, and entrepreneurship. We apply our decades worth of experience and insight into what makes businesses work, so we can help others grow both personally and professionally. In this ever-evolving marketplace, we help accounting firms and financial advisors grow their practice through the adoption of holistic wealth management services. Learn from industry leaders and subject matter experts to unlock the secrets of their success a podcast that shows people and companies the transformative power of technology so they don't fear it, but instead, harness it. Don't fight the robots, team up with them. And here are your hosts, Rory Henry, Director of Business Development, and CEO Rob Santos of Arrowroot Family Office. Special guest with us today, Uh, he was the CEO and founder of Just Invest, which was purchased by Vanguard in October of 2021. He is now principal at Vanguard Personal Indexing, which aims to provide investors with best personalizations, ESG choices, and tax management at a fair price. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest, Jonathan Hudaka. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Great to be with you, Rob and Roy. Wonderful. I mean, we're big
2: fans here. You know, to start off, we usually start off with just having people uh, kind of go over how they got here. You know, so you mind giving some about your background and, and kind of how how you got to where you are?
0: uh happy to give you that it can get long-winded so feel (laughs) free to me off when when you need to Um, i've uh i've had a really incredibly lucky career uh didn't intentionally set out to be in the investments and finance space but uh kind of stumbled into it and i'll tell you a little bit of that story uh and how we got here and super you know super thrilled to be part of the vanguard family um at this juncture it, it came far faster than i think any of us expected But it was absolutely a a great outcome and sort of what we had hoped for when we found it. So, uh, by way of background, uh, you know, I studied anthropology in college. My mom used to always ask me during that period, like, what the heck are you going (laughs) to do? What are you doing? That's an unemployable profession. Not at
2: all. I was an anthropology major myself. I knew I liked you. I knew I liked you right off the bat. Yeah. Had the same experience for my mother, too. Sorry to cut you (laughs) off. Keep going
0: uh i made my way so i'm based here in oakland i've lived out in sort of the, the greater silicon valley area since coming out here for college uh started working at apple where i got a lot of very good hands-on instruction in how important design and aesthetics were Uh, But also, unfortunately, was there in the Dark Ages. uh, Steve Jobs was not there. And other Ah. fools were trying to do clone businesses and other things that were creating a uh, cratering business. And at the tender age, I think I was 24, maybe 25. They asked me to lay off like a third of my team. And I was like, hmm. I will lay myself off and walk out the doors. and I'm not doing that dirty deed. Uh, and that got me looking through, just go ahead and know how old we are, guys. I was looking through the newspaper to find a job uh, reading classified ads. And there was this little ad for a finance company in Berkeley, California. And I thought that just sounds great. I wanna do more math. Lo and behold, I arrive at a place called Barra. Um, I worked there for a number of years. Barra was a, sort of under the radar, but very important player in quantitative finance and provisioner of tools to institutional investors. Uh, I got super lucky through my time there, both learning enormous amount about investments, uh, mostly through their clients and serving their clients, Uh, ultimately headed up uh, institutional analytics business there, which meant I was working with some of the largest investors globally uh and in the 2010 uh the firm acquired risk metrics and in that acquisition kld and Innovest, which were some of the leading esg data vendors and we started working with large clients think large state pensions sovereign wealth funds etc who are bringing equity investments in-house uh combining them with index data quantitative portfolio management and esg data And that was sort of an aha moment for me of thinking, like, wow, that's, uh, you can't solve ESG for everybody. Everybody's got a different take on it. They're going to have different preferences, and it's going to require customization and individual accounts, which led me to thinking about some of the other clients we were taking care of who were doing custom SMAs, many of them for tax purposes for ultra high net worth clients. And looking at how they were operating, I came to the conclusion it could be done more efficiently, more at scale, uh, serve more individuals and deliver better value. So that was really uh, the catalyst for me to leave uh, the time MSCI Barra and start to just invest, uh, roped in a few uh, other investment professionals from BlackRock, uh, Appurio Group, et cetera. And we were off to the races, but you know, sort of a defining moment in that very early sitting around, you know, as you do when you start a company, First thing you do is you go and you sit at a table and you have beers, right? you got to figure out, like, is this the partner I want to do a company with? These are really important choices, right? And I was like, look, you know, I want to be clear. My ambition is to be the biggest direct indexer or personalized indexer in the world. And that can only mean really one exit strategy. You get acquired by Vanguard, BlackRock, or State Street kind of that's it those are your options and we all kind of nodded and said okay that's fine it'll take 10 years to get there but that seems like a reasonable path and ambition uh and we set out to build a company that you know we think we do it better than anybody else we had the the good graces of either working at other firms or seeing how they worked or licensing tools to them uh and with that sort of internal knowledge we said what were all the problems what are the things that we can do better and improve upon Let's build those into what we offer uh, and let's bring that to market. And I think we do sincerely believe that we've got a great offer uh, and super thrilled to be now uh, delivering that through Vanguard and under the Vanguard brand.
1: Yeah, to take a little bit step back here, Jonathan, can you talk about what direct personal indexing is and then how historically this was really for the ultra high net worth, uh, but now through recent advancements, uh, fractional shares, uh, commission free trades, this is now being opened up to a wider audience.
0: Absolutely. So let's take a step back, right? First of all, this is not new stuff. It's It's kind (laughs) of a, a labeling of some old stuff. And there is definitely new technology. And as you just mentioned there, several sort of market developments have facilitated its expansion. But we can go all the way back into the 90s. There were already people saying, hey, I can manage a custom Separate managed account for my client. I can loss harvest within it, and there's clear tax benefits. So, you know, as people love to say, resting on sort of the shoulder, standing on the shoulders of great giants, there were many people back in, mm-hmm. in the 90s even who had the clear perspective that the US tax code, which is, and usually we love to pillory it, say it's terrible. Having looked around the world, there's one aspect of the US tax code that's amazing, and it is this notion that we have the freedom to decide which lots we will sell. And if we choose those lots that we sell and they're at a loss, we can harvest those losses and use them as a tax shield Uh, against other gains in our life. That's an amazing aspect of the US tax code that should never be underlooked by anybody. Okay, so what is direct or personalized indexing? It's really driven from this idea of a custom SMA. So traditionally it would be, you would set up a separate account for the client and in there you're going to own a set of investments. It's not a good, de- it's not well-defined because what you'll find is some providers will do this with a basket of ETFs. So maybe I'll go and I'll buy 15 sector ETFs and cover the U.S. market, and then I'll, I'll say I can tax loss across those 15. There are some obvious limitations of that approach. We prefer to operate on single-name stocks. But then you think about like, okay, if I want to track, say, the U.S. market and it's got, say, 4,000 names in it, am I really going to buy 4,000 names in my client's account? No, that would be both difficult and it would also make tax loss harvesting difficult. So here's where you get into this notion of direct indexing, direct coming from direct ownership for the client, they own stocks. It's indexing because it's always tied to an underlying index. You're tracking a portion or a part of the market represented by some standard index. But the real magic that all of the good providers do is they don't own the entirety of it. We're gonna sample through some methodology, we're gonna sample and own a statistical representation of the market, so that we're only holding 200, 300, 350 stocks out of that. So maybe I'm trying to track uh, 3000 name index, but I'm gonna hold 300, but it's statistically gonna look very, very similar to the index in its characteristics, and it's gonna deliver a return stream that basically mimics the index. So now I'm directly owning those stocks. I can loss harvest because I don't own all of the index. As I loss harvest, I can buy replacement stocks, put them into the client's account, maintain my exposure to market. So I capture market return. And along the way, harvest losses, harvest losses, harvest losses. It's a tremendous engine. And it's it's really shocking that every investor doesn't have some part of their invest, taxable investments in one of these.
2: It's- you know to to get in Well, one i love that you're an anthropologist that's fantastic <laughs> We can we can, well, we, can about about <laughs> actually, we have a separate episode and just talk about that's a whole another episode actually we have another senior managing director uh an error and she was an anthropology major as well uh i think it's i think anthropology is a great uh tie-in to personal finance for people because understanding culture uh is a huge part of helping people with their finance um, secondarily congratulations on all the success on it, you know, we've been reading about it. Um, you know, we know about it, and congratulations about you being a vanguard. That's it. That's a huge uh, coup. You know, for for us, you know, historically, and for a lot of our clients, even the ultra high net worths that were doing the SMA uh, kind of, you know, de- indexing here with the individual stocks, they didn't completely understand it. Uh, there. And, you know, a lot of what we do and a lot of what people are doing on that, listen to this podcast is educating themselves and then educating their clients about a a lot of this. But, you know, one thing that we've seen that has been enormously beneficial, uh, both to the accounting profession as well as to the end client is one, you just touched on the, the tax loss harvesting on an individual security basis as opposed to a whole ETF right, Uh, and being able to do it. But secondarily is that it allows a a deeper, broader discussion uh, and brings the client into their values as well. And, you know, could you maybe talk about how ESG is tying into this? Because, you know, that's increasingly becoming a a big part of conversations uh, for people talking to their advisors.
0: Yeah, I think we're still very Early stages of that, and obviously you're seeing now uh, in the headlines some some blowback. Um, You know, in some cases it's economic driven. You were out of the market, say, because you were short uh, energy from a fossil fuel perspective, and energy rallied earlier this year. We all know that there's a certain amount of momentum chasing in the investments world, and so folks look at that as a, gee, there you go, ESG failed. Uh, I'm not sure I would characterize it as that, but. Um what I think we're really in is a day and age of personalization, whether that's around ESG, whether that's around religious values, whether that's around just personal capital situation. They all ultimately can be really well expressed through a personalized index, right? So, you know, we could all pull our phones out and look at our our home screens and what apps we have on it, and they'd all be different. And there's no reason that a consumer and investor shouldn't expect the same in their investments, which is their investments, yes, ultimately serve a purpose of some usually long-term goal, whether that's getting kids through college, whether that's retirement or some combination of those. But there's no reason we can't within that accommodate also personal characteristics and and values for the individual or for the family. So ESG is a great example. Um, We do a fair amount. I'd say about a third of our book has some form of either ESG from an environmental social perspective or values and you know most of those are religious values but not always you know we can get certain people who just have values around what they believe is good corporate behavior i don't you know we don't want to own these companies that are doing these things oftentimes tied to certain social media companies or their practices there and the beauty with a with a personalized or direct index is the provider can take out companies that an uh, investor objects to either through activity or even specific names, or you may even just want to take them out because your clients works for them, right? I'm here in the Silicon Valley, we've got lots of clients who are dual income, they're in, you know, they're in the tech industry, maybe both of them are in semiconductors. And it's like, wow, you have all this exposure in your life already from this, if I buy the S&P 500, I'm going to be getting more exposure for you even into the company you work for. That's not necessarily a great choice. Let's take that out of what I'm buying for you because we've already got the exposure here. So by this act of owning individual securities, we can tailor so many things. The ESG world specifically, I'll just you know kind of close on saying, it's really a fast evolving place. It's super yeah. easy. You'll hear a lot of people who criticize it. The data is conflicting. The data's got low correlation between vendors. It can be interpreted in different ways. These are all true things, but they aren't bad things. To me, that just means that it puts the onus on the manager to be doing good due diligence and listening to the client about what they want and looking carefully at the data and employing it in a way that reflects what that investor's choices are. Yeah.
1: Yeah, taking a step back here, I wanna talk about tax loss harvesting um, and how you can do this on a daily basis as well. And then maybe touch on uh, here, Jonathan, uh, how maybe a use case on how you could do tax loss harvesting and why it makes sense for maybe investors who have uh, positions outside their their taxable equity accounts?
0: ok. Let's start with that latter piece first. Then we'll kind of get into the the methodology and why yeah. you know, Vanguard in particular, talks about a daily methodology. So first of all, let's let's just for our listeners recap what is what is tax loss harvesting? What is this notion? Um. As I said, in a direct or personalized index, we're going to own some number of securities. Let's just say for argument's sake today, we're owning 200 securities for you, Rory, and that's meant to track U.S. large cap market segment. Okay, so we might have you benchmark to the crisp U.S. large cap index. And our goal on a pre-tax basis in a year, three years, five years, as you look at your account and you look at that benchmark and you're like, huh, it's really, really close. Like, within 20 basis points. So 0.2% difference up or down. And we don't care about the up or down because it's statistical noise. All we know is we're, we're trying to track it really closely. So if I can achieve that as my first goal for you, great. The next step is I want a tax loss harvest for you. So if some company, Twitter has a bad news day and or uh, you know Ford yesterday had a terrible news day, and you know, they lost a court case, a billion dollar plus, you know, um, um, finding or whatever against them and the stock drops. Right. So if I had bought it two or three weeks earlier in the account and now you're at a loss, we don't cry about that. We just sell it. We realize that loss. And now that's that stock, we can't buy it back for 31 days. This is the wash sale rule that the IRS has. So we're going to respect that as I told you earlier, we're going to buy other stocks that maintain a statistical shadow like the index. So it looks just like the index, almost exactly, not quite, but almost. Lots of people say, well, it's really for rich people. I'll never have that many investments or I won't have hedge funds or whatever that need that. And I say, wait a minute, most Americans not only own a house, most Americans sell their house twice or more times. We all know if you sell your house the first time you get a tax exclusion, great. But that second time, and if you're in an inflationary period and you sell your house again and you've got $100,000, $200,000 capital gain, not hard to think about when you're living in a house that was $600,000 and sells for $800,000. Wouldn't you love to take $100,000 of that gain and eliminate it and not be taxed? that's a pretty great planners and accountants creation of value for their clients. So this is where tax loss harvesting really creates value. Okay, Now, then you get into this methodology. Historically, before computers were rampant and easy and cheap, people would tax loss harvest an account and because of the wash sale rule, 31 days, They'd say, great, let's just leave that account alone for 31 days, we'll come back to it in 31 days and then we'll see if there's something more to be done with it. And that was adequate and good. There's nothing wrong with that procedure. You could even do that on a quarterly basis, a semi-annual basis, it's fine. It's It's not injurious to the client or to the account. However, if you want to maximize loss harvesting, you would say, can we do it at a higher and higher frequency? And we recently published a paper here at Vanguard that shows empirically that yes if you could take it all the way to its theoretical limit and actually tax loss harvest every day you would be able to squeeze out more losses and therefore create more tax shield for an investor so our kind of innovation in the market was to come with you know we we maintain an asset level ledger so when we sell and harvest a loss we know about that one and we can trade the account the next day 5 days later whatever In markets where there's very high volatility, think back in March of 2020 when the pandemic started, or even earlier this year, you tend to get markets are really choppy for brief times of period. Those are the best times when you can loss harvest. So you wanna be most active in realizing those losses in those periods so that when you get back to sort of a low volatility, calmer upward trending market, you've already banked those losses and you've got them ready and available for the investor to use.
2: Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean you hit it right, right on the nose. you know, traditionally speaking, accountants would be or accounting professionals would tell their clients, have you tax has your advisor tax loss harvest harvested for the year? And so you know in December, it's a flurry of activity to try to do that or try to push your advisors to be able to do this. And as you know, you're saying this innovation is now computerized. And also with the lack of transaction fees, uh, you know, on that, it it also makes it more efficient. Could you maybe talk about just in the marketplace, you know, the reduction of transaction fees, uh, at least as it's seen by by clients, um, and also the ability to own fractional shares uh, now allowing people to be able to do this on a smaller
0: account size basis? Absolutely. So when we started the business, and remember, that wasn't that long ago, 2016, Ticket price to trade was still one way, was $19. And even then at $19, so think round trip $38, buy and sell, or sell and buy, uh, we could still demonstrably show that tax loss harvesting created more benefit for the investor. After our fees and after those trade fees, we could still create value above and beyond the index return for investors, typically at an account $500,000 and over. Now. Granted, most Americans, average Americans, don't have $500,000 in taxable. Much less, you know, if you think about 60/40 model, you're talking about having more than $500,000 of of taxable investments. But along come these incredible market uh, evolutions. One is that trading commissions first went from 19 to 8.99 to 5.99, and boom to zero. Beautiful. Uh, now, I think we all know somewhere somebody's paying. Uh, there's great, <laughs> great books written on that topic, but another we'll put that podcast. aside for today. John Oliver
1: episodes, yeah. <laughs> another, another
0: <podcast. laughs> but you know, on the surface, free trading—that uh, means that we've reduced significantly for the end investor the cost of this service. You know, no longer are they paying five, six hundred dollars to get invested, and then a few hundred dollars every rebalance. Now that's that's gone. So the value of the tax loss harvesting has just gone up as a result of that. So that's sort of factor one. And factor two, as you mentioned, is fractional shares. So before these large companies, or I should say these you know sort of dominant companies in the index um, started doing share splits, you had lots of stocks, Amazon, Apple, Tesla, et cetera, that were trading $1,000, $2,000, $3,000. That's a real obstacle if you come to me and you say, Jonathan, here's $50,000. I'd like you to track, you know, the U.S. top 1,000 companies, and you know, the first 20% of that is basically dominated by companies where it's like $600 per share and up. I very quickly deplete your $50,000, and I can't. And so, therefore, I'm left with this big discrepancy between index and what you own. What we call tracking error. And we don't we're not f- fans of tracking error because usually, you know, clients don't like when they they end up short of the index return. So. Fractional shares say, hey, instead of buying that whole piece for $3,000, I can just buy the dollar amount of it. You know, if, if we're doing a $50,000 account, I, can, I only have to buy $300 of that and I can move on to the next one that I have to buy $200 of that. And so we can, again, get back to owning two or three hundred stocks and getting good representation and good tracking to the index without with a much smaller dollar spend for the client and That's the the beauty of fractional shares. So these two things started happening in 2017, 2018, really accelerated the general sort of main street advisors realization of like, wow, that thing that used to be just for rich people, ultra high net worth, high net worth because they had million dollar plus accounts, it can now be available to my clients as well. And so we're seeing that. And I think we're still at the early dawn of that availability for general investor. speaking of the
1: early dawn i'd love to hear any data you have jonathan on in regards to adoption i mean we had uh, mutual funds etfs and and now this is coming onto the scene you know what is the adoption rate here with this type of strategy
0: yeah uh well it's funny you asked me i was just reading a cerule report this morning uh they're kind of one of these you know there's a few firms that really study the asset management industry and in that one i don't remember the exact figures but you know ballpark hundred billion dollars in growth last year. So still tiny compared to the ETF fund. You know, the ETF transition from mutual fund to ETF is maybe in middle innings and it's still it's just like it's got its momentum and it's huge. You think about the trillions of dollars that have moved there and the size of that market. Uh, They estimate that the direct indexing custom SMA direct indexing space is about 450. Let's call it 500 billion currently and grew 100 billion last year so that's why i say it's sort of dawn early innings you know and if you know i just see it on a day-to-day basis going out and talking to lots of advisors yes you'll see ra shops and wealth shops that have been doing this for several years but you'll see more firms who are just becoming aware of it they don't do it for their clients um, and that is you know a growing adoption trend
1: yeah. I mean, I just had Brennan Frazier, who has a, a great podcast called The Human Side of Money, and he talks about value-based investing. And I know we touched on ESG briefly here, but can you talk, is this being used as a prospecting tool at all, Jonathan, where you can go to a client and say, hey, you can exclude these companies or we can include these companies? I mean, my mom, she loves pets. <laughs> so I'm sure she doesn't want like animal testing uh, companies, right? Or, you know, she's big on women's, uh, you know, uh, empowerment. So she, uh, women-led companies. Is this something that's being used as a prospecting tool?
0: Uh, it's absolutely used as a prospecting tool. And I'd say the two court cases, which are no surprise to to you, are one, what you've just touched on. Hey, I'm aware that you're involved in this philanthropy and you have these certain interests, right? Yeah. I can now help you reflect that into your investments. So the more the advisor knows about their client, knows about that family and their interest, can start to weave that in and, and kind of touch on sort of non-financial aspects, which we see deepens a relationship between advisor and client. So that's absolutely one opportunity. The other is coming back to the economics. They can also say like, look, I can actually improve an economic, you know, like, it, it, Two or three years ago, there was a lot of talk about, you know, maybe a little bit longer, four years ago, the robo advisors coming, the robo advisors going to (laughs) to terminate the relationship of human advisors. And particularly, we would see a ton of fee compression on human advisors. And so, we saw is a lot of advisors struggling to articulate to their client why their service was worth, you know, the $10,000, $15,000 a year. But when you can show that client a statement that says, look, we've harvested at colors of losses at your tax rate, it's created a tax shield that's worth $20,000. That's more than the advisors charging. So that's also a prospecting tool where they can differentiate from another advisor or a client doing it themselves to say, hey, look at this true economic value that I can create for you by introducing you to and investing you in this service.
1: Yeah, Jonathan. Is there anything else uh, going on in the market or with your strategy, like that you'd like to share here
0: with the audience? Uh, with my strategy, no. I think we've we've touched on lots yeah. of things. You know, I I would encourage people if you have not heard about direct indexing, personalized indexing, that there really is true value in it. It really can deliver significant opportunity to address unique situations within a family or an investor whether they've got lots of RSU whether they inherited a bunch of stock and they're concentrated um, or if they simply want to reduce their taxes even a few thousand dollars a year it can it's a really flexible tool. There's a number of good providers vanguard of course i think is the best but there are a number of great providers out there that an advisor could avail themselves of and it delivers value to the investor and i think ultimately that's the most important thing i would like would hope that advisors always trying to do the right thing for their client and therefore i'd say take a look at that Um, there's lots of things in the investment space that i think are really interesting um, and we can talk about those one of them kind of closely related to direct indexing is, I think, we're, as I said, again, we were the dawn of this op- offering. So people are just discovering how to use it, and how to embed it into the overall investment set. Now, many advisors, as you know, use models, it makes life a lot easier to say, Hey, I've got these various models, I figure out which one's best fit to my client, and I put it in, and it's already got sort of the preset mix. So Thinking about how you include a direct index within that model, how much do you size that direct index relative to the other components of the model? It can all be quantifiable, it is quantifiable, but nobody today really offers that out to the marketplace. So that's something I think is a really interesting opportunity set for the the investment industry to fine tune and deliver out to investors as well. Another one, I don't know a ton about. I have. I think about it. I talk to my kids all about it. It's crypto, of course, right? (laughs) And if you think like the U.S. tax code is incredible for tax loss harvesting of stocks, the beauty of crypto is there's not even a wash sale. You (laughs) can literally buy it and sell it three times in the same day and harvest losses and it's got the same tax loss harvesting property, which is just remarkable to me. This one I suspect will not survive the tax code changes yeah. in the future for much longer, but hey, if you're willing to trade crypto, if you're into that stuff, you should think about that. That's an incredible tax uh, advantage there.
2: I love it. Yeah, a- absolutely. And you know, we have a lot of uh, accounting professionals that are working with other advisors, but also thinking about becoming advisors, right, uh, from the tax perspective. And I think this this shows a tremendous amount of kind of value for them to get a lot of confidence in the investment strategies and the why of, of uh, you know, what you all do and why it's gonna benefit the clients and ultimately their practice by adding value on the tax side, as well as on the investment side. That's fantastic.
0: I I have to say I've, there are no no two professionals that are more obviously better when put together than kept separate. If you, again, if you think of the, they're both, their aim is to ultimately, you know, A, keep clients obviously compliant, but, you know, equally importantly, create better financial outcomes for their client. And, You know, there's so many things that I often see wealth managers want to do for their client, but they just don't have the expertise around, like, you know, what's the optimal, as I said, like, how much loss harvesting would be optimal for this family? Or, gee, is there some gifting strategy that's more optimal for them with these assets that they have? Um, And tax folks have all of that expertise. Should this be in a trust? If it's in a trust, is an irrevocable trust better? And what are the options of that there, I mean there's so many little nooks and crannies where when you put those two professions together they can really unlock a lot of value for families
2: we're i love it <laughs> yeah, we're, we're believers appreciate your time jonathan again congratulations on the yes. journey we are we are huge fans we are huge fans of democratization of financial instruments for people of any net worth Uh, And I think this is a tremendous uh, ability for a ton of people. We will put links uh, on the podcast um, and at the end of this so people can come to Vanguard, learn more uh, about direct indexing, uh, about how they can be able to access information, um, you know, and hopefully people take advantage of it. And hopefully we can have you back on again sometime soon.
0: I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to a fellow anthropologist. And <laughs>
1: uh, Rob's going to make me start an anthropology podcast now. <laughs>
0: Absolutely.
1: He'll be our first guest, Jonathan. <laughs>
2: Absolutely, it's a great podcast. It's it's going to be called the Financial Anthropologist. So yeah, I, I like it. A lot. You'll get an invite for that. All
0: right. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great afternoon. Thank you, Jonathan.
1: All opinions expressed by Rob Santos and Rory Henry on this website podcast interview are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of our Root Family Office LLC or their parent company or affiliates and may have been previously disseminated on television, radio, internet, or another medium.
2: You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their opinions. Past performance is not indicative of future results.